You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, um... It occurred to me that this is kind of an interesting, it's kind of a textbook example of two uh, very different ways to start a um, speculative or imaginative story. And one is where you create a very strange world and then you release little bits of information and gradually, it's like a puzzle, gradually let people figure out what it is. And the other is, also a very traditional form for fiction was where you you create a very normal world and then you introduce uh, a strange element maybe one at a time so it's they're kind of a reversal and one I think um, is more typical of science fiction which uh, I think Jeff's was as the way it begins where you you don't know where you are and you're figuring it out. And it was interesting. I thought your story, it was interesting. It's, it's sort of like Stephen King's, it, it's not even Stephen King, it's, it's, a, it's probably the major way people treat horror. But you can't have horror until you have the normal world where we live in and then shit starts to happen, right? right. <laughs> so I thought it was uh, um, very interesting. If people have any questions, uh, that's fine. I just, yes, Karen. I have a question. So you both seem to write stories about or about or containing or for children and also horrific stuff where people <laughs> die and everything happens. So do you, do you need a separate mindset to switch or do you find that, you know, the same thing can come out no matter what you're doing? Oh, that's all you. <laughs> I don't know. But you write some stuff for kids. Yeah, yeah that's nonfiction, though, right? Yeah, I've written, um, uh, I've written like nonfiction, which is really that's just me profiting on my children. You're like, oh, this happened, and how do we fix it? And now I'm gonna, you know, sell this article to Boys Life or whatever. Um, I haven't really, um, haven't written really like children's fiction. I've tried to sell children's fiction, but haven't been successful with that yet. So, now my question would be, what, in what way is this a YA story? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, this story would be perfectly suitable for publication in fantasy and science fiction magazine, for example, which is not thought of as a YA market. And yet, a, you know, a, a big segment of FNSF's readership is teenagers. Is that true? Yeah. I never dreamed that. Yeah. Really? Very huh. young, sort of. And, that, and that's a problem because there are fewer and fewer, um, you know, kids reading magazines like FNSF now that it's, it's just different people are reading more stuff on the web and and they're playing science fictional games and stuff um, there's I don't think there's a a, a big difference um, most uh, so I write actually in, in relation to your question a lot of the horror I write is for children so there is no switch over there it's um, it's a little different writing horror for kids because you ha- you have to be you have to understand that for a child everything in the world is much more intense than it is for us grown-ups because as we as we get older I think we develop a sort of set of filters or a thick skin um, that allows us to deal with the world without being completely overwhelmed by it every time, just by the sheer mass of sensation. Um, so you don't want to scare the bejesus out of some little kids and <laughs> won't be able to sleep all night. <laughs> you don't? I thought you did. You just want to give them a good time. That's the whole object of horror, really, is to show people a good time, I think. Um, and if you cross over that line, then you get into some other territory. It's the difference between Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft, mm. I would say. Um, Stephen King's books are bestsellers because they're a lot of fun to read. 
and he's a great writer and he does that very well um, but he's he does not have the dark sensibility he's a much more optimistic person <laughs> than H.P. Lovecraft pretty well. clearly and it shows in his work um, I don't you know I don't I have never read H.P. Lovecraft for fun well, nobody. Has. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I can't <laughs> speak for others, but uh, but certainly, <laughs> I've never <laughs> read him for fun. I've read him to study how good horror is done, <laughs> um, and I've read him to be completely just scared out of my wits if I was in that mood. Um, hmm. You had a question. No, I was just raising my hand because I read H.P. Lovecraft for fun. <laughs> you read Lovecraft for fun? <laughs> That's my son, by the way. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I have a question, but it's not deep. Good. Ask Jeff, what, what is the nanotechnology disaster? That, and what's just the basic premise of what's happening here? That's deep enough. That's um, not deep. That's deep <laughs> enough. Uh, in the and this is I mean this is again this, this stuff they're doing right now. I mean it's on CNN every other day. Uh, in the book, it's a medical prototype nanotechnology designed to fight cancer. Um, in the books, you know I imagine that we've taken things up a couple steps from where we are now. Uh, but again, they they really are doing these are like dumb bots, um, especially like for tumors. The you know the tissue is more acidic than healthy tissue and they can basically flood your body with you know microscopic you know bots they're not I mean, they're not really intelligent or doing anything um, but they tend to congregate in that acidic tissue and then they dissolve leaving metals behind I forget the six syllable name of that metal but then when you um, you can do an MRI scan and bam you know the tumor just jumps right out um, in my book you know I'm imagining that they're working on something that would actually go in and police your body of disease or find malignant tissue and actually just disintegrate it, you know, and you would just walk out and you're you're totally you're totally cancer free. Um, self-replicating is that the problem? Or yeah, and, and I mean again, this is this is a prototype, so it's it's nowhere nowhere near to be ready. And one of the things that they have perfected is a replication key, you know, where you can take because machining, you know, one nanobot that say you know has 500 working parts, you know, each of which consists of thousands, you know, of atomic mass units. I mean, constructing one of those, you would have to do it by hand to get started. Um, this would be an extremely tedious process, even if it was, you know, highly automated. You could have a whole factory, you know, of machining probes and whatnot putting this together. But the trick is if you can embed it with software and teach it to replicate, you can make, you know, of course, your one nanobot becomes two and the two become four and the four becomes 16. And, and so in the story, uh, you know, there's an active industrial espionage and, a, you know, a, a guy takes it out of the lab before it's ready. One of the controls that they're using is a hyperbaric fuse. And again, stuff that they're you know stuff that they're really doing today, where you're you're working on this stuff inside a sealed you know hermetic chamber, just in case it gets loose of the atmosphere hoods on your microscopes, you know on the I mean even that's unlikely, but if it gets loose out of that, then it's you know we're say we're in the self-contained room, it can't get out of here. Now in my book, the uh, the self-contained room is set at 70% of an atmosphere, and there's a hyperbaric fuse in your little nanobot, so it just disintegrates at low at low air densities, right? Well, the guy takes it out, and he's got it in a little sealed little packet, and he takes it outside of the lab. Does he get hit by a bus? Something happens, and bam, it gets loose, and it just immediately begins disintegrating all warm blood life. It uses carbon and iron to make more of itself, and, you know, again, you know, mayhem, mayhem ensues on a, on a very large scale. Wow. Where'd you get that idea? I'm sick. No, seriously. Uh, um, you, you know what? It's uh, this. This is you know you you got to be crazy to be writing stuff like this, right? Uh, the basic concept just came from um, skiing and backpacking. You know, my whole life I just grew up. You know, my father would take us out. We would ski, backpack. Um, you know, and then as I you know as I grew up and you know became a writer, and I'm always looking for the cool ideas. Uh, my brother and I ski together a lot. We have a couple of buddies who go up with us. You know, and it's it's fantastic. You're up there. We always go in like there's fresh snow skiing and powder you don't want to go home and we would sometimes you know call into work and it's it's really snowed too much it wouldn't be safe to come home um or you know or i'm sick can't come into work on monday and you stay in the extra day but i started to think what if we really couldn't go home right and just started playing so you know built it kind of from the top down mm. started playing with different scenarios originally it was a virus it was just the problem you know just kind of like the stand you know your so average you didn't start with a disaster you started with started with the scenario started oh. started with the weird environment and kind of built the story up from there yeah interesting, interesting. Yeah. Um, and again lucky to you know lucky to move in science fiction circles um, you know attended Baycon, Con Jose, met some interesting people working in the Silicon Valley 
you know, and they were doing slideshows and presentations on, you know, the nanotech that they're doing. Uh, I told Rick they had uh, one of them foolishly put their e-dress at the bottom of one of the slides, and I'm in the back going, "Oh my God!" You know, and, and I wrote that down and uh, sent him an email, said, "Hey, I'm working on you. I'm a, you know," and I'd sold a, a number of short stories by that point, so I was, you know, I was a professional writer, and and said, "Hey, I'm working on something," and they were real eager to talk about what they're up to, and you know, and I, you know, did my due diligence and did the research, um, and started poking stuff around with them, and said, "You know, could I do this? Could I build that? You know, would this is this plausible?" Um, and just sort of, yeah, like I made, now I've made a career out of the, I've made a career out of ditching work so I could stay and ski. <laughs> That's how it all started. Nice. Yeah, I know. It's sometimes it's really cool to be a writer, you know, it just works out nicely. Um, and like, um, you know, next, next month, my family, my mom lives in Steamboat Springs now. So we're going to go fly out to the Rockies to stay with grandma. Grandma babysits. She cooks for us. My wife and I get to go out for dinner while she babysits the boys. We're going to go ski, but I'm not there to ski. I'm there to do a book signing and be on TV and talk to the newspaper in Steamboat Springs. It's a tax deduction, right? <laughs> Dick Cheney is my personal moral compass for tax deductions. Oh, well, that's pretty good. Well, now, how long does it, t- how lo- when your story starts, it's already... Um, it's already loose and the world is, yeah, the world's been devastated, yeah. How long did that take? Well, in the story, um, it takes about, as I recall, it's about two weeks for the plague to sweep, to sweep eastward with the wind, right? Because the wind is always, the, you know, the, the storms around our planet is always going west-east. That's why we're getting all the pollution out of China right now, which affects our weather patterns and stuff. Um, you know, you get up into the trade winds, get a little switching around. Of course, it self-destructs at high air densities, but enough of it would percolate across the Pacific, bam, you're in Africa, you're in Europe, and, you know, things get out of control. Um, it's, it's funny, this is, doing this stuff is kind of like time travel for me because I'm already working on the next book and, and moving on. Uh, Plague Year was out in 2007, and that seems like a really long time ago to me, which is funny. Um, but again, I, I don't get enough sleep. We have kids, and I haven't had enough sleep for seven years, so every day is like three or four days long. Um, I, as I recall, I'm sorry, I recall it's like maybe like two months, <laughs> two months the nanotech gets around the whole planet, so there's, there's time for everyone to panic. Cool. Yeah. And, and so 70% is roughly 10,000 feet. Yeah, it's actually 9,570, something like that, or 65. Um, but, yeah, you have fluctuations with the weather, right? You have low-pressure fronts, high-pressure fronts. It's going to be a going up and down. The, the safe line is going to be going up and down by, you know, two, three, even 400 feet, right. depending on what kind of day it is, which is a severe bummer because the best times of day to be dipping down to go scavenge supplies and shelter and medicine and fuel and ammunition and whatever is during the worst weather. You know, like when it's a bright, beautiful, happy, sunny day, you have high pressure fronts, the barrier's going to be high. And, you know, every, every extra 100 feet that you can get down and be safe is a good thing. Um, and it's all, you know, it's all plays into the story where they're trying to get down in the darkness and the rain and the ice, and, huh. and it's, it's, uh, it's miserable. Well, that's what you call high-concept science fiction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's funny. I mean, I've kind of made a career out of just that one that one little idea, um, you know, and I know my publisher would be happy to see, you know, Plague Number Four, and I could just do that, you know, forever. But it's a, it's a nice, neat trilogy. It all kind of ties together, and there's just there's just you know there's other sandboxes I want to play. And there's other stuff I want to do. Like what? Well, um, the, interestingly enough, the fourth novel that I'm working on right now is uh, is another end of the world thriller, um, but I'm destroying the world in a different way, um, and I can't tell you anything about it because it's totally top secret. Um, it's just it's another another kind of high concept. It actually has a, a much smaller body count, which isn't hard to do. Plague year starts and like five billion people are dead in the first paragraph, so it's uh, it's not hard to have a, it's not hard to have less of a body count than that. Um, but yeah, no, I just uh, just toying around with different ideas, um, and it's, I'm just playing it close to the vest, not to be coy, but just because it hasn't sold yet. Um, and you would run home and write the book better and faster, right? Not faster, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, not better either. That's not my, not my strong suit. I did one high-concept book, but I haven't done very many. But, the uh, bears discover fire and become intelligent? In what way is that not high-concept? Well, uh, so you have a high-concept book. <laughs> the, the Undo Book. Now, where'd you get that idea? The Undo Book. So, so the Undo... I have this children's book called The Power of Un... And um, it's about a boy who, who comes into possession of this little machine that allows him to redo the last segment of time. And he can decide how long that segment is. But it's just the most recent last segment of time. And he has a chance to do it over as many times as he wants. Um, 
So I guess that's high concept. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I got the idea for that uh, years and years ago, like in 1984 or 85, we were walking down the street in Palo Alto, and there was a computer store on University Avenue. And uh, in, in the store window was a, you know, what later would become known as a Mac classic mm-hmm. with a mouse and a menu bar. And these were things that were unheard of at the time. You know, and the menu bar had this, you could go into Mac Draw and you could, you know, make a drawing and if you made a mistake you could undo it you could undo it <laughs> you could undo it and uh and, and I spent you know the rest the next 15 years <laughs> thinking about how that would make a really cool kids story if you could undo things in reality that way and this was just how it how it ended up coming out it ended up to be a book about morality and cause and effect and personal responsibility and <laughs> all kinds of other things but well that's what all books are about yeah it's good yeah I, su- <laughs> I suppose yeah in the end yeah in the end good books yeah so how did you get into this business uh when i was seven and i knew how to write the alphabet uh, i started to write my own stories and um Really? The first ones were written in crayon, and I just always wanted to be a writer. So, you know, as soon as I was able, I wrote a wrote a book and and uh, sold it. And that was right after you got out of college. Yeah. What book was that? That was a, a little old science fiction book, which is about to come out uh, on Kindle and other e-readers now. And which em- sort of embarrasses me because it's <laughs> it's old and it's not all that good. Uh, called the Watchers of Space it was for eight to twelve year old kids, and uh, and it was uh, uh, you know about kids on a generation ship uh, that was slowly being destroyed. You know various different suspense heightening mechanisms happened, um, and I was. 22 when I started that, and I think uh, 24, 25, or 25 when it was published. And um, it makes you feel good. Yeah, or didn't it? it? It made me feel real good. I was saying at dinner that when I got the contract for it, uh, I didn't look at the contract. I just signed it, basically, <laughs> and popped a bottle of champagne because it was an amazing. I, mean, I saw it as an amazing piece of luck, and I do think there was some luck involved. The third publisher that saw it bought it. And, Who was that? Uh, Avon Books, the old Avon, which is no longer with us, like so many publishers, um, and they published three, of my first three novels. They did. What year was this? The Watchers of Space came out in 1980, I think. And, uh, and then there was one that came out in 82 and another one that came out in 84. And then there was a big gap because in 1984 he was born. You <laughs> ruined everything, man. And I had to switch to short stories for a while. No, it's just because because I was I worked at Avon Rep from like nineteen eighty six and seven and eight. But yeah. So how about yourself? Had you you started with short stories? Yeah, um, Ann Perry gave me the piece of advice because I always wanted to write books, um, and Ann Perry told me I've since heard this elsewhere, but Ann Perry said to me. Um, if you want to write novels, what you need to do is write and sell short stories first. And kind of the traditionally, that's kind of, especially in the genre, you would, you know, you write short stories, you break in, you know, you learn the craft, you learn the, you know, the editorial feedback and deadlines and commitments, whatnot, and then you sort of move on to novels. Um, I started doing it because I'd been, I mean, I, I grew up with just a serious bookworm. Uh, my father and maternal grandfather especially were both just big sci-fi guys. Um, both of them engineers, big libraries of stuff that they, you know, I just grew up reading, 
you know, everything from like, you know, the old Alan Dean Foster Star Wars knockoffs, you know, that came out with the, you know, the movies. This was like when Darth Vader was pursuing Princess Leia and Leia and Luke weren't brother and sister and Darth Vader wasn't anybody's father because nobody knew that when the first movie came out. And so they're just, you know, from everything from like, you know, like, I mean, you would consider that sort of a hack novel now to, you know, like, like, like the deep stuff, you know, like Asimov and Le Guin and, um, and, you know, I mean, I grew up reading all the Heinlein novels, and I just always wanted to do that, too. Cool. You know, I, I mean, uh, I think we can safely say it's widely known that most writers have neurochemical imbalances um, and a strong bent for language and words. Do you guys hear voices in your head when you write? When I'm writing and it's going well, I hear voice. I mean, I can hear the characters talking in my head, you know? Um, and that's, like, the best part because I'm like, I'm like, man, I can hear them all. And, it's all, and it just comes so easy when it's really going right. Um, it took me, a lot, uh, took me a lot longer than that to break in. Um, that's pretty pretty impressive. What did you say? You were 22 when you sold your first book? Um, yeah, that's about right. Uh, that's awesome. I mean, I, I hit the big 4-0 last summer. Um, and man, I'm, doing, I'm doing all right for myself. I really thought I'd have like eight or nine books out by now. Um, I mean, I try not to get you know, too bitter about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's tough. It's a, t- it's a tough business to get into and then, and then to survive in. I mean, there's, there's so many other more intelligent things that you could be doing than trying to you know, write books. Uh, so, you know, crazy people up in the front. Well, that's true. <laughs> but it's totally, it's so gratifying. Like when the writing is going well, it's so gratifying. I mean, and again, I get to play, you know, both sides of the chessboard. It's like doing like a three-dimensional, you know, all-side chess game. And I'm everybody in the book. You know, good guys, bad guys. I'm the environment, you know, I'm the political situation. I mean, it's everything. So you get to juggle all that in your head. And it's just, I mean, when it's going well, it's really, really, it's just, it's just awesome. It's, it's, uh, it's almost indescribable. It's gratifying. That's the word I'm looking for. You know, it's just really good. For a writer, it's no. always describable. It's always describable. It's really cool. Wow. Is it like that for you? Well, I, w- I was just saying uh, during my interview over there um, that I I always hear the characters, certainly. And in fact, I, I need to be experiencing the emotional parts of it in order for I mean, that's really how I know it's good, yeah. right? And it gives you, 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 you get to, to live these vicarious lives, kind of, because it's really, it's like being there if, when it's going well, don't you think? I mean, um, it's not that way for me, but it is for law writers. Yeah, you know, it's that way know. for me. Um, everybody, I mean, it's, it's totally, I mean, everybody's yeah. got their own methods and ways, and it's different in everybody's head. Yeah, I just make it all up. <laughs> oh, sure, I make it all up, too, but... <laughs> um, but it's, for, it, for you, it's all... You, did you always feel like you were writing... No, the first book wasn't... Well, it was about kids, but it wasn't for kids. It was for kids. It was for kids. Yeah. <coughs> because I felt... My first novel was about... A guy, but it's like many post, you know, uh, people of boomer generation, young male novelists are writing uh, versions of, uh, you know, on the road or or a building's roman, you know, a young man coming of age kind of thing. So, uh, um, but you were never tempted into that kind of thing. You were always working with. I, I didn't start with science fiction, but you're, you you started with science fiction from jump. Well, I had that I had that real bad. I mean, I grew up. I mean, I was just again. I was reading like Michener when I was twelve, which is you know kind of a little bit odd. Um, but I read. I mean, I almost I don't hardly read any science fiction at all anymore. I mean, of course, I hardly read at all anymore. I mean, I have, I have kids, deadlines. My wife yeah. works. You know, we uh, we're, you know, we're homeowners. We have a yard. Blahdy blahdy blah. Um, but I'm a huge fan of like John Irving and Amy Tan. Um, you know, I grew up reading, um, you know, like the whole Clan of the Cave Bear series, which is, you know, pretty literary stuff. Um, I think I actually have a John Irving tragicomedy in me that I'd really like to write. Um, but just from a career standpoint, it doesn't make sense to jump from like the Plague Year series and, uh, you know, John Irving human drama kind of stuff. You know, my editors would be like, you know, what the hell is this? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, have, I mean, I have actually I have pretty extensive notes on that on that novel. Because, uh, you know, life is just so beautiful and lonely and tragic and all those things at the same time. 
I would like to write that book, but I think realistically, and plus I'm you know getting all mature and stuff. Yeah, you're um, getting pretty old. Getting all old and stuff. I was noticing at our at our dinner, everybody had gray hair except that you know I'm supposed to be like the young guy, and so what's up with that, right? <laughs> um, I would like to. I would thinking like I'm going to write that book as like the eighth or eighth or ninth title that I get to, and I, I don't know. Do you need to do it under a different name? Do I become Carl Jefferson to write my John Irving novel? You know, because you, you do, I don't think there's. I mean, I get a lot of mainstream crossover from the thriller crowd, but I don't know if, like, the literary crowd would, you know, readily, or my sci-fi crowd would readily embrace the literary. So, you know, these are the things that keep me awake at night. I don't know. It's a good yeah. question. Cannibalism in your book's not a problem. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> I know. Exactly. No, uh, I <laughs> But the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the literary novel would not have the cannibalism in it. Exactly. So. It wouldn't? No, no, no. That, off- that, that offends. Award? It offends some people. Can you believe that? The National Book Award winner this year has. No, no, I know. But the heroes weren't eating anybody, so yeah. they were trying not to be eaten. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, yeah. That's sort of. Yeah, that's the difference between mainstream. They try not to be eaten, and they. You're not the ones that eat people. Yeah, you never stoop to that. I just read recently read um, One Second After by William Forstgen, I think the last name is. Great post-apocalyptic novel. It's about an EMP pulse that shuts down America and stuff, and uh, pretty well written. It's a great story. And, yeah, what it comes down to, I mean, you know, there's nothing left. There's no food. And, of course, the bad guys are like the roving bands of, you know, cannibals and stuff outside their little valley. And the, the people inside the valley all lay down and die. I mean, there's people in the valley, like, you know, there's 10,000 people in the, you know, in the good old American valley that stay there, um, and there is no food. They, they bring themselves to eat their dogs, and that was about as far as, that was like the big of a moral crossroads as they could come to, and the people just laid down and died. I'm like, dude, no. I'm like, you know, not with 10,000. Somebody, somebody, somebody on the good side, you don't just lay, I mean, there's like, you know, you two have died of starvation. I'm sitting here next to you. Am I going to sit here and watch myself starve to death over the next week and a half, or am I going to cook you up, Terry? I'm cooking you up, buddy. I know you might want to move away a little bit. The question is, are you going to wait for him to die first? Well, right. Well, no, and it's that for me, for, I mean, you know, but I, I'd already crossed the line with my books. That's the moral dilemma. Um, you know, I mean, for me, I don't, I mean, I don't, especially like they're, they're watching their children die. They're watching their children die of starvation. I'm like, dude, I don't know. I'm like, you know, I think, I think, you know, you cook up grandpa and keep your kids alive. That's just, I mean, that's just sort of me. I'm sorry. Well, let's you know. move on. Yeah, let's change the subject. <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> yeah. I always like to get a little bit into the technical end of it. Uh, and, you, you know, um, I mean, did you, did you always think of yourself as writing horror? I mean, do we think, uh, do, uh, I think, like I was saying, when I say, I think writers always start, they learn from other writers. They learn from what they've been reading. They, that's that you're always starting. I guess you're always starting in a genre in a way. You know, I mean, I thought at one point, like my first novel, I wanted to be a literary writer. But you know, the whole Carol, I was uh, enthralled by the whole Beat Generation thing and all that stuff. And of course, that was that's a, that was also a genre at that point. There was a you know, um, so that wasn't. Uh, uh, I mean, did you feel like you started in a, there were effects that you wanted to make happen, that you had, uh, that there were, there were reader expectations that you wanted to excite and fulfill, rather than something that you just wanted to express, I guess is what I'm saying. Wow. I don't, you know, I don't think I was that conscious about it, really. I knew I loved to write. And I had read um, genre stuff all my life. My dad was a big science fiction fan. We had issues of analog and lying all around the house. I've had issues with analog for years. (laughs) (laughs) I have too, actually. (laughs) But um, I just sort of tended toward that. I loved to read it. And so it was was what I thought of writing when I thought about it, although my first published work was poetry and not science fiction poetry. What was that? You know, um, you know just poems that I had published in various little journals. Oh, before you started writing fiction? Yeah, before I started publishing fiction. And oh. then, you know, when I got, when I graduated from college and I thought, okay, now I'm going to be a writer. Um, so, so what's when you got selling? to New York, what did you do? What's selling, you know? So I wasn't in New York. I was 
here. I was down on the peninsula, which I thought was the big city, <laughs> having come from Reno. <laughs> and um, I got a book about you know how to how to become a successful writer, and I can't even remember the name of it. Mm. This person said, "Find out what's selling best, and write that." Oh, really? Yes. That's pretty out there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and it was kids' books. And um, so... Nowadays they say, write what's in your heart. You know, yeah, right? sure, so. right. I mean, that's what your English teacher tells you. <laughs> write what you know and what's in your heart. And this book said, write what's going to sell. <laughs> so, uh, so children's books were selling hot then. I mean, they, they always sell better than books for adults, and they stay in print longer, too. And I thought, well, I love, you know, I love, you know, kids, and I, I love, I'm going to try to write a children's story. I love kids, and I love success. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, you know, cooked up a plot that was a real page turner, and I wrote this science fiction story about these kids on a generation ship. And it was published, and a month later, Star Wars came out. Booyah. Booyah. <laughs> what does that mean? That was bad or good? People liked Star I Wars. I hit the trend, and I hit it just oh, right. Okay. And that book was, you know, it was a bestseller on the children's books wow. lists. And it was, you know, it wrote my ticket for s several books. Uh, oh, so okay. I, see, I didn't know that part That was a big it, piece it, of luck. Okay. Because I didn't know that was about George to Lucas hadn't, you know, let you know what was coming. No, and this book I bought didn't say, you know, <laughs> science fiction <laughs> is about to hit big time ah. in the movie theaters. Um, and so, you know, it was it was perfect timing. It was it's a case of being in the right place at the right time. It was that sort of science fiction. You know, I sort of outgrew it relatively quickly. And you know, wanted to go on to more sophisticated things, and I did things backwards. I decided I wanted to write adult science fiction books, and since you had to break in by writing short stories, because nobody thought of children's science fiction as real science fiction, um, so I went to Clarion. Oh, you went to Clarion? Too. I didn't know you. And that. fixed myself up with. Uh, pointers about how to write short stories and and it it was good timing anyway because I was about to become a mother and and so short stories made a lot more sense than novels um. oops sorry question in the uh, the corner sorry. yeah oh, sorry uh, just with regards to your your literary aspirations that you were talking about before do you feel trapped by what you've written so far with regards to that or do you just feel that you need to move in a completely different direction because I think I think there's a pretty a, a, a recent very good example mm -hmm. of somebody writing essentially a, a book uh, tackling the same kind of subject material as Cormac McCarthy and the road which received tons of literary praise oh yeah I mean I should be on Oprah right my book's I better mean, than that book you know and it's just I mean he essentially wrote a post-apocalyptic book but just chose something different to be the focus of, of the book yeah and a really interesting style different of telling the book what? too I missed the last, he chose what? He just, instead, instead of, I think, what normally people think of as, you know, the main subject of a post-apocalyptic novel and sort of the more sci-fi angle, he, he just chose a different subject to focus on, which is, in this case, a relationship between, you know, a father. Yeah, as opposed to, like, watching the cities crumble and everyone, you know, degenerate into savagery, it was really more the father-son relationship, and you know, hence it was sort of, sort of and, and more I literary. I don't know if you feel sort of, if, if you feel trapped by, you know, writing the plague, the plague yeah, well, um, uh, actually, a tough, tough question. I like the tough questions. Uh, you know, I, I know Ace would be delighted if I called him up tomorrow and said, I'm, I'm starting to write Plague Number 4 right now because, you know, I, I've definitely found my niche. You know, having a moderate amount of success in the U.S. Um, I don't know if I feel trapped by it. I mean, it's funny that, you know, science fiction, you know, is like the literature of ideas and um, and... I mean, I really like blowing stuff up. I mean, it's a lot of fun. I mean, these are the books that I grew up reading. 
Um, and you know, I didn't start out with a plan at all. I just started writing. I, mean, I wanted to be Joe Haldeman or John Varley when I grew up because I just thought it was just the coolest stuff ever. Um, and you know, the science fiction you can um, you know you can write stuff at a very high literary level. You know, where it's you know full of evocative imagery and moving human drama. You know, all of which the Plague Year trilogy is full of. Um, and yet at the same time, you can bring in the big ideas of, you know, well, what would happen if you removed all warm-blooded life forms, you know, basically from the whole planet? You know, what happens to the insects? What happens, you know, to the plant life? And, and you know, how does it all fit together? I mean, you know, uh, there's, you know, an ecological message. I mean, you get, you, get to, you get to play with all these different ideas. I get to research all these different, you know, aspects with, you know, just with the, the military, uh, the space station, you know, politics again. So, I mean... I don't know if I'm expressing this well. I mean, I'm so free to do what I want. Um, and with the, I mean, heck, even with the second the second book, the first one had done well enough, and we knew that we were doing a, at least three as a trilogy. I mean, they basically said, write your own ticket. I mean, you know, just, just kind of do, you know, just make sure there's a certain number of exploding helicopters and just do what you do, and it'll it'll be fine. Um, and so, you know, the, and the, the third book to me, uh, you know, because I do like to feel that I'm growing and pushing myself, to me the third book is the most ambitious of the bunch you know again it's got some point of view from like a character on the bad the bad guy's side and a couple more point of views and it all you know comes sweeping together for the, like the great crescendo um i would like to write my straight out mainstream tragic comedy you know like a john irving kind of a novel um and i know that i'll be able to get to it at some point but you know, one of the things that you get into, I mean, this is this is my job. I mean, this is all I do now, and I have you know a mortgage and a, and kids and stuff. So some of it does come down to the commercial, the commercial considerations. I mean, I couldn't, I could just say I'm going to sit down and write my big literary novel and see what happens, and I'm sure I could sell it, um, you know. But does do I lose the audience that I've already built now? Um, and it, it's a book that I'm excited about. Um, and that I want to get to, but in the, and by the same token, I've got three or four books that I want to write now, right now that are you know kind of more like you know like the tech thriller, sci-fi thriller kind of books, and I'm just starting to really get like a good head of steam. So you know the more I don't know the more mercenary side of me says it would be foolish right now to stop that momentum. I mean the books are selling overseas, um, you know the audio rights, film rights, stuff like this, and so I want to I want to keep that steam train going, and I don't really feel trapped by it because I can. You know, the book that I'm working on right now is, you know, bigger and better and higher and, you know, and, and richer in story and all these things. I mean, I'm learning so much. The last five years has just been such a – I mean, I just, I just wanted to have a book published before I died because, you know, because I just love to read so much. And then I don't even read anymore because I'm so busy writing and keeping up with my deadlines. So, I mean, I, I'm going to have so much fun, you know, writing like the next three or four thrillers and trying to push myself – with the craft and the characterization and the plot and the some of the, like the people that I get to talk to. I mean, in the last two months, and I'll stop. I've had like a whole sprite. You know how much sugar is in one of these things? Um, I mean, like in the last two months, I've got to talk or email or otherwise correspond with, um, you know, senior astronomers with the SETI project, um, both active and retired naval officers, guy uh, who works for NORAD, you know, NORTHCOM, you know, North American Aerospace Defense. Um, a couple of people who work in proteomics, which is the study of uh, protein expression patterns in the body. I mean, genetics is like so. This guy's like genetics are so 1990s. You know, he's like he's like that's so old school. I mean, proteomics is what it's all about. And I'm like, okay, cool, tell me about it. Um, and so I get to, I mean, I get to just soak up all this stuff and then kind of you know try and spread it out in the book at a very shallow level. So it's I mean because I'm not writing science papers. You know, I'm writing thriller novels, but like I need to learn all this stuff. And then I'm a layman, and I need to explain it to laymen. And so, like I, you know, I, you know, I can't build nanobots, but I can talk a pretty convincing game about nanotechnology after three of those books. Now, so I, mean, I just get to learn so much cool stuff, and then I get to kind of boil it down and just sort of put in just the right level of frosting on that cake. You know, I mean, it's it's just when it's going well, it's really really gratifying. So, you know, I know that someday, like someday, I want to write like a book that like the critics don't sneer at. You know. The first, like the first full-on big-time professional review I ever got was Publishers Weekly, and it was thumbs down. The second word of the review was tiresome. This tiresome sci-fi thriller debut, and I'm like, and it's all over Amazon, right? It's, when you open up the Amazon page for Plague Gear, it's like the first thing right there under the cover. I'm like, fuck you, buddy, you know? Um, and, and she even used awesome words like timely and well-written and ingenious, but there was too much action-adventure. But I'm like, dude, the cover says the next breath you take will kill you. I mean, it's an, it's an adventure novel, 
You mean, come on, I'm not writing, you know, the literary, you know, and you should have known that when you picked up the book. I'm sorry it didn't meet your expectations. So anyway, I'm going to shut up now. So I mean, I, wa I want to write like the literary novel and be all prestigious and be on Oprah and get the Booker Award. Uh, but I'll get to that, right? There's time. And that's enough for you? There's time. The, uh, Oprah. Oprah's enough for me, baby. That's all I need. Oprah and Target. John. Yeah, it's true. Like any, any of the three of you, for your talks on, I mean, this actually ties right into a couple of the last questions. Um, your reaction to um, sci really science fiction novels that are not perceived as science fiction, they're seen as mainstream, like The Road, like The um, Children of Man, Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale. So these things are, are viewed as mainstream fiction, but they're science fiction. Right. You know, right? So, um, and they're treated as serious. They're, they're literature. Literature. So a couple of things. One is, why is that? Do you think it's a, a difference in the actual piece of writing? Is it a difference in who's writing it? Um, and I'd also be interested in your, react, your, your personal reaction no, no, I have a very, very short, very short comment. I've heard that uh, the, one of the reasons for that, you, you're talking about like Douglas Preston, James Rollins, these guys writing, you know, quantum physics, aliens, time travel, but they're mainstream thrillers. Uh, and I've heard it's because science fiction won, right? And this is just now accepted as a mainstream kind of thing. But yeah, take it, take it away. I was actually think, not thinking of those kinds. I was thinking of the ones that are really consistent. So well, P.D. PD James's James. book, The Children of Men, is yeah. a great example. She's she writes mysteries, you know, and she's the grand one of the grand dams of mysteries, and uh, <coughs> they're very literary, articulate mysteries. And uh, when she wrote a science fiction book, it was reviewed in literary places because those are the connections she has, I think. There's, but there's also this, this phenomenon, and I can remember, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, there was a book by a first-time author about uh, dogs suddenly becoming smart and mingling in high society. That sounds like a Terry Bisson short story. Lives of the Monster Dogs, that was yeah. it. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a great book. It's science fiction, but it was reviewed in the New York Times book review, and it was, you know, in, in all the literary places, you know, and she was a darling at the dinner party circuits and stuff. Um, why does that happen? You, the, the time traveler's wife is another good example of that. I think part of it is the tone of the book. Part of it's the way the publisher decides to market it. Some of it undoubtedly is the author themselves. Who are their connections? Do they live in New York? <laughs> you know, I, I think all those things have something to do with it. Yeah, I think also, I think it, um, you know, if you, uh, it's, this has gone on for a long time. I would, like in your thing, I was thinking of at the same time, uh, two authors, uh, I remember first encountering back in the middle 60s were uh, Phil K. Dick and Michael Crichton. Now Crichton was never really considered a science fiction writer. Oh, he was. That Your book reminded me a lot of Crichton at his best. I like Crichton's stuff quite a Thank bit. Thank you. Andromeda Strain, that was a, that was a science fiction novel, but That's then he the one. moved That's, in the other yeah. direction. Well, no, he didn't really move in the other direction. Well, he, he was moved, or they moved uh, him. or Jurassic He was never... Uh, yeah, in what, what way is that not even, science fiction? Right? Even... Uh, um, even uh, uh, Andromeda Strain was not uh, published as science fiction. Okay. Science fiction, I think, one thing we forget is a is a train that's been moving across the landscape for uh, quite a while since the 30s and the 40s. And uh, and if you're on and a lot of uh, if you're on that train, you're a science fiction writer, and it means you know a certain amount of people. You're published at certain houses. You. You are. You think of yourself as a science fiction writer, I, and I think uh, there are. And there are some people who are on that. Uh, does that make sense to people? It's like it's, it's, a it's, it's not a. Yeah, it's too, not yeah. a trivial kind of thing. It, yeah. It's like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Cormac McCarthy's uh, last book. It didn't just. He wrote that book. 
he had been plowing that same ground for 20 years. He's yeah. been writing these very literary, sort of Faulkner-esque, uh, quite difficult, quite high-toned kind of books for quite a while. And so uh, if uh, somebody had just come along and written The Road, it would not have, I don't think it's a very good book, actually. I think it's one of his weaker books. But he's he's like Philip Roth. He's a, talk about a train, he's a train. He's going, you know. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know, like Ursula Gwynn is a, a she's a, a real interesting example because she always, uh, she's a very high literary author, but always wanted to consider herself science fiction and made an effort to, in, in, to basically envelop her and fold herself in the field and has done that quite deliberately. You have another writer like Jonathan Lethem who started as in science fiction and made a tremendous effort to, even though he's still loyal to the field and friends with people made a tremendous effort to get out of it because the ceiling in science fiction is pretty low, you know. Uh, um, and I don't know, what I think about it is it's something that science fiction writers come, we piss and moan about it all the time. You know, it's how, you know, I don't get no respect. Uh, but it's, it's also a, a, a warm, small pond, you know. And you can you you do get published. You have re, you have in, you have incredibly intelligent readers. The science fiction reader is a problem solver, and they're 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 uh, applying a lot of in, intelligence to the work. And it and they're also I don't know. It has its um, benefits. And we all like I say we complain about it, but uh, uh, we we set it up in a way. I'm kind of rambling. But no, well said. Well said, sir. Yeah. yeah. Well, for example, Margaret Atwood, who's, who's always been perceived as a literary writer, she grew up reading science fiction. That was all that was around her house. It was Weird Tales, All the Folks. Right. So, yeah, yeah, she's a, she's a total science fiction geek. And she's but careful never to allow herself to be called that. Yeah. No, no, but she, but she, but she loves that stuff, and, and I think she, it took her a while just to get around to the point where she felt comfortable with it because she's not a scientist. So, and she, she, her perception of the field is that it's really based in science, and so she's very scared of being called science fiction writer because she's un, un, uh, she's not confident that she can, you know, she's not a scientist. So I think that her, her, she, the people, some of the people who approach this stuff later in their careers might have always been. I mean, she might have wanted to write a Robert Heinlein novel out of the box, but didn't feel comfortable doing that. You really think that's true? I talked to her. She told me that. Oh well, all right. She's got it on tape. I think she's, <laughs> she's telling you the tape. truth. I, no, I, I think can. she bullshits a lot because yeah, yeah, she about that. She, she, uh, she did her uh, graduate paper on uh, old science fiction, on Victorian science fiction, The Purple Cloud, M.P. Shield. That mm. was her graduate thesis paper. So she's not a, so she knows that stuff. But then, she, that was, so why does she say it's not science fiction, doesn't have any talking squids in it? Uh, <laughs> what I don't she know that, Wait a minute. Well, that's, that's a very famous quote for her. When I talked to her, she, was, she loved, what she told me was she liked science fiction. She's happy to she's happy to be writing what people consider science fiction, but she's not. She doesn't. The reason she doesn't consider herself science fiction is because she's not a scientist. And so she's, you know, I think that uh, she's a purist. To, she's, like Carol Emshwiller is a scientist, right? Or <laughs> Karen Fowler, or Stan Robinson, or well, no, no, Greg right, well, that's, But that everybody has their different entry points right. into this, so. I, well, I mean, okay. it, it's interesting. I heard Ursula Le Guin one day. Um, so the, it was at a panel situation like this, and someone in the audience asked her, why do you write science fiction? And she said, I write it because that's what my publisher calls it. <laughs> yeah, but she's pretty careful to call it that herself now, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Somebody asked Phil K. Dick once why he wrote science fiction novels. And he said, for the $1,500. <laughs> nice. But the interesting thing about Crichton and Philip K. Dick, I mean, also, Crichton, 
you know, out. I mean, he was a hugely successful author, and and Dick was, and Dick, Dick has now joined the canon of the ages. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and you know, of course, so. he hasn't been here to enjoy it. This is that's nice to you know, nice to. Did something happen to him? Philip K. Dick. <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff happened to that guy, man. It'd be nice to like be there while the movies were out. You know, it'd be nice to like go see how they destroyed your story. You know, f- you know, and what they I did. I don't on think he's the kind of guy that would have gotten. Yeah, you know exactly. Oh man, that was a horrible movie. I never, I never met the guy, but I, he didn't seem like the kind of guy that would have gotten a kick out of that. But possibly. Does that, does that answer? What do you think? No, I think that was. I think yeah. Great. No, what do you? Great, th- great answer. What do great you answer. think? Well, I actually do think that it, it is the history of the author, and I think that the very same novel, depending on what your your past novels have been and, and what you're classified as, the very same novel would be reacted to differently. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And sure. find totally different audiences. And find different audiences. Yeah. Michael Shaman's a good example. He, uh, you know, he's... Uh, um, He's very, but people now are friendly to science fiction, so they're, you know, it's like, um, you know, but, and he doesn't mind being called science fiction, because like Jonathan Lethem, he's got his, his mental attic is filled with uh, popular junk, you know, so he likes, science fiction is part of his. Uh, but I do think there are things that you, that there are kinds of science fiction that will never be considered as, so you, Jeff, you said, yeah. Look, he, uh, uh, Cormac McCarthy was just l- focusing on a different thing, in, and yes, but he was focusing on something that made it a mainstream novel, or that at least made it a candidate for a mainstream novel, which is a relationship. And if he had been focusing on kind of what happened to the world and all of the, we don't even know yeah, what the science fiction would have been science yeah. fiction, yeah. That, that, yeah. and that would not have crossed over. Well, and uh, as Terry said again very well, was that you know uh, McCart- McCarthy had been uh, would you say had been plowing that ground for a while. I mean, he I mean he has I don't know how many books he's out. It's like eight or ten, but he's already you know a literary darling and has that background. Again, it's the perceptions. You just say, oh, you know, wow, isn't this interesting? He's taken on you know this very dark idea, but hasn't he done it in a lovely way? Um, you know. So some of it, some of it is very much obviously. I mean, you know, it, yeah. if you're uh, if you're a Pepsi person and Coke does something, you know, you just, you know what I'm saying? I mean, he's he's a brand. I mean, he is he is what he is, and so he can he can stretch things in ways that other of us perhaps couldn't. Um, well, yeah, and also I think I think a real uh, the, your major science fiction writers like like uh, your friend Brent or Stan Robinson. Stan Robinson, great example. It's, New book. It's science fiction. Uh, it, it could never be mistaken for anything else because it the it it sort of depends on the reader having some sophistication and knowledge of the tropes in the field yeah. it, it doesn't come out of uh, a book like the road uh, people would call it science fiction to me it's it's very simplistic stuff let's, let's get rid of you know there's no there's very little science fictional elements to it there's uh, nothing's changed you know uh, and I think you're right. It's science fiction is a bit primarily about the idea of what's going on, and secondarily, I think, quite properly, about the people. Now, sometimes these people end up being better than one of the main. So it can be great characters, but really, the focus is always on, on the, the car and not That's the passengers in a way. You the know, mechanics, right? how that car works. Yeah. Goes on, yeah. What, makes what that disaster was that caused the yeah. cannibalism. Yeah. Although Ursula Le Guin's novels are about often the societies. I mean, they're they're about. But that's the idea. Too. About, no, this is the idea. You're no, right. she's a, Ursula Le Guin. I think is hard science. The science is just anthropology. It's. Yeah, you know, I was just gonna say she does a lot of the social science yeah. and and what would happen if you put this colony out here and how would they take, develop? Yeah. Hard SF used to be all gas and steel and. And stuff, but uh, you know, it changed. And and you know, like uh, Octavia Butler's first books, I think, were hard science fiction. They were biological, uh, but they were science fiction. But you know, I read a thing. Um, we kind of forget one another thing. I, I remember reading an article by Mary McCarthy, where she was explaining why fantasy and science fiction novels were not novels. They weren't even novels, and she was right. She said the whole point of the novel 
was literature before, um, you know, before uh, Jane Austen or before uh, the 19th century, was there were romances. There were these stories of impossible things and dragons and this and that and the other and Saint, you know, and and then when the novel came along, the novel was about the real world, the dated money, manners, and morals. It was about getting married. It was about uh, making money. And the, the unique thing about the novel was that there was no magic in it. There were no wizards. There was no science. You know, it was, and oh, that only lasted, for, uh, well, I don't know. Anyway, I think I, that was, I thought that was very prescient. And I thought it was, it's not like that anymore. But I think, uh, when we complain that people don't take science fiction seriously as novels, we forget that uh, in the beginning the novel was intended to be something entirely different, up until maybe Virginia Woolf or James Joyce. Really, Joyce's a literary something. work about relationships. Or not even particularly really? literary, just a work, of, yeah, a literary work about, yeah. And Puns. Yeah. What? Who, who decided that? Tom Jones was a novel, as well as Jane Austen. Tom Jones is a novel, but there's no magic in it. There's no spaceships. There's no dragons. So what? Huh? So? It precedes Jane Austen. Um, oh, yeah. Well, are you, are you agreeing? Or, I don't understand. He's poking fun at you. Who, who had the authority to declare what a novel was? Mary McCarthy. Mary McCarthy. <laughs> Mary McCarthy. <laughs> oh, there you go. She has a lot of authority. Jane Austen didn't. I think I don't, I don't accept I think Gulliver's Travels was not part of the novel. Yeah. But Richardson was and Fielding was. These were novels because they were about, you know, uh, even Don Quixote. Don Quixote was a novel because all that stuff, none of this stuff was true. He was making, you know, it was never, anyway, I'm beating a dead horse here. But um, I wasn't saying uh, Jane Austen invented the novel. I'm just no, saying okay, she invented yeah, but, the modern but, novel. But the definition of a novel that I've never heard of before. Well, it, admittedly, I do not read, practically speaking. Yeah. Well, it's an old definition. It's an old definition. It's, it yeah. wouldn't. It wouldn't play today. You couldn't play it today. Um, it's interesting to think about Mary Shelley's book Frankenstein. Right in this light, which was, you know, a, some say the very first work of science fiction. Um, and it's really, you know, it's very sort of Jane Austen-esque in many ways. I mean, it's... Like, for example? Well, beyond the vocabulary, it's really about relationships and it's about the emotional aspect of that monster. Belonging. It's about belonging, it's about alienation, it's about uh, yes, it's about the idea to some degree, but the idea is used as a springboard for this characterization stuff. Yeah, no, I didn't mean. It. I, look, I think all everything's about the emotions and care. I, I, by the not, but Jane Austen is about the emotions and relationships and stuff. But it's also it's about houses and money, <laughs> yeah, you know. And true. so that's how that stuff plays out, you know. And that's it's. Uh, you know, yeah. that's what that's the difference I'm in. Or or like Tom Jones, for example, is about getting a job, hooking up with somebody, you know, getting out of jail. It's about real stuff. You know, that's all. This will all be on the test. <laughs> <laughs> well now that we've figured out what's a novel, <laughs> if you guys have any uh throw something in, sir. We're starting a new year. Who's got a big idea? Jacob. Got a question for Nancy. Um, writing for uh, how much does the market dictate how you write it? Uh, if you're writing this, your, your, the story you, you wrote was written for a uh, for a, for an anthology of, of all zombie stories, so the reader knows before they start the story there's going to be a zombie in it. When we read this, when you read the story to us. We didn't know that, so we know that when when you know, when we're being told, don't you know, if it gets too serious, don't give him the honey. 
something bad's going to happen, but we're not expecting a zombie. You know what I mean? How, how much does that inform what you write that, that you know, that the audience knows sort of what your punchline <laughs> is going to be? There you go. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm... God, that's me. I don't, uh, I don't generally... R so when I first started out in writing, I was writing for the markets, and I wanted to be published, and I just wanted to write what whatever publishers wanted to buy. Um, and that, you know, that wore off. And certainly it was gone by the time I started writing short stories. And uh, it's been, I do not generally accept assignments to write stories for, and theme anthologies certainly, um, because I'm not good at it usually. But there was a thousand dollars involved this time. <laughs> I thought I'd better try it, and it was um, something I'd been thinking about for a while, anyway. Um, so I guess my answer to your question is that that I don't I don't write anymore. I don't write with the market in mind, and that has uh, uh, bitten me in the behind a couple of times. But isn't, but isn't all horror like that? I mean, I mean. I mean, there's, there's probably going to be a supernatural element that comes into the story. So if you're, I mean, I wasn't talking about specifically about this story and whether that's, that, that's a bad thing when you're writing toward, toward, toward the market. But when you are writing a horror story and the, the readers know, you know, it's, it's like those ghost stories, that, you know, the 19th century ghost stories when you, they're fun, but you read too many of them and it's like, oh my God, at the end, it's like he was, and it was a ghost all along. And you read too many of those, and you kind of know what's coming. So how do you get around that? How do you, how do you keep it fresh? How do you not write a trite story? Yeah. Um, or how does the story not become trite because of the reader's expectations? If you, if you read, the, if, if that story goes into a market that's not expecting a supernatural conclusion, it has a mu It seems like it would have a much different impact. Yeah. Than to one that does. Well, I, you know, it's always a danger when you when you write um, a story around a trope like, like a zombie or a ghost or, uh, or something. And and um, I mean, most of my stories do not appear in in horror venues. Actually, that's one way to avoid it. <laughs> his question is actually very interesting. So you knew when you were writing the story that it was going to appear in an, an anthology of zombie fiction. Did it cross your mind to write the story differently than you would have written it if you were writing it for FNSF or for something where the reader doesn't know in advance that it's a zombie story? So did that at all cross your mind and affect your writing? I don't think so. It's a little hard to know. I mean, I mean, you could imagine that it would. How do you, you not know what you know, though? Yeah, that's right. How you? I mean, it's a deep <laughs> philosophical <laughs> question. That's why you like it so much. You know, I don't even know how to answer that because I, I'm just not that. I, I'm not that conscious when I write. I'm just writing example, a good story. And I in this context, you could have started that story by saying, um, I'm really sorry I created that zombie. And it wouldn't have any effect because everybody knows there's going to be a zombie. Whereas you wouldn't want to do that if it was going to appear in Playboy and you know, that would blow the whole story. Yeah, and I suppose I, I didn't write it that way. I mean, I... I, just, I Jeez, I don't even <laughs> know where really to go. I, I, you certainly, in the first place, the zombie anthology and FNSF are not really different markets. They're, they, you're, you're always dealing with a reader who's, who's looking, who's a, a, a gamer, is, is trying to figure out what's, well, what's going to be the yeah, trick and what's going to be the deal. If you're writing a zombie story, you're, the way you write a story and the pace and the characters is going to, 
I think will determine how you release the zombie information, and it won't be any different if it was a uh, it was in a uh, a zombie anthology or if it was just in a general right. Thing. The, the pacing of a story and the way and the pace at which you reveal little details dictates the success or failure of the story, and um, you know the the fact that you're writing it for a particular venue is not going to affect that pacing, I don't think. No, not that much. Uh -uh. I don't think so. I mean, do people know what a generation shift story is? Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, imagine if you were writing a story for, say, for, for a, some sort of collection where you were expecting, like, a zombie or, or some other sort of creature. I mean, you could imagine faking the audience out. Like, and, and they're all like, oh, this is where the zombie's going to happen, but then it doesn't. But whereas you wouldn't, there'd be no reason to do that if you're writing it for a more for a more general audience because they're not expecting a zombie until the zombie happens. <laughs> you guys should be writers. No, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. What, one of the things you get to do in genre fiction is play with, you're dealing with very set expectations. Uh, a sophisticated reader, but a fairly narrow track of expectations and in many ways, that frees you up to do a lot more stuff because it it, it gives you parameters to work with that that are it does that, that it, free you in a certain way. Yes, and it makes it sort of easier if you if you know your audience has a sort of toolkit of yes, tropes they're, they're going to be looking right. for, and they're not stupid. It's it's you know then you can have fun throwing them off the track, right. and that would to some degree be venue dependent, I suppose, but. Um, it's always safest, even even when I'm writing for a particular venue, I try to write stories that will work in broad venues, because you can never be sure the editor's going to buy this story. <laughs> That's right. And if you, you know, if you have written it too specifically, your goose is cooked. No, your story's just unsold. Yeah, you've, you've <laughs> got a story in your trunk, and it may be there for a long, long time. I'm beginning to fade a little. Yeah, yeah, we're all fading. So uh, <laughs> we'll see you guys. Uh, what's Rena gave us a date. What's the date? February 13th. February 13th. Thanks for coming. This is the beginning of our fifth year. We've had two very exciting authors tonight, Jeff Carlson, Nancy Etchemendi. Thank you all for coming. And we'll continue our discussion of genre expectations. Yes, Karen. Are we going to have signings out there? Oh, yeah, these guys are going to sign books yeah, and schmooze. Yeah, we're, we're just going to move out there. Cool. Moosey into the lobby. Thank you, guys. Yeah. It was great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.